How are we doing, Passion City Church? We doing good? Awesome. If, uh, if we haven't met, as Brad said, my name is Jonathan Hansen. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Passion, and I got to say, I am, I'm really excited to share with you guys tonight. I feel like the Lord has kind of been putting a message in my heart for the last two weeks, and I, I really do believe uh, it was for tonight. And so I... I was like, man, when, when I, I got the opportunity to do it, I was like, all right, Lord, I, already, I know exactly where you want me to go. I know exactly what I'm supposed to talk about. And when those sort of things happen, you just get excited. You can't help yourself. So I'm pumped for tonight. Um, if, if you don't know much about me, I'm, I'm married, which is an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing to the strongest and most amazing woman I know, Lindsay. We have two little kids. That's right. You can probably give it up for her right now. We need that. <laughs> We have two uh, amazing little kids, a five-year-old, Lily Hope, and a three-year-old, Sawyer David, who is uh, a handful. We'll hear a little more about them tonight. And um, I just want to give a huge welcome back to all of our students from Winter Weekend. How y'all doing back there? Y'all hanging in? I, uh, I'm so glad that you guys made it back tonight, because I think, I think what we're talking about tonight will be... Um, be so huge for you guys coming off this weekend and, and what you guys are stepping into. And so if you haven't been around for the past few weeks or month or so, uh, we've been in this series called Habit, and it's been incredible. And, and the idea is that one step at a time, we're shaping our future. And tonight, the thing that I want to share with us about, the thing that I want to jump into is a really simple idea. It's a really simple idea that's just kind of been etched and, and kind of burning into my own heart. And the, the idea is this, okay? What we love forms our habits. What we love forms our habits and our habits fuel our loves. Think about that. It's kind of like a little cycle. If you could picture a, a wheel with two arrows on it, right? One pointing to the other. What we love forms our habits, what we love forms our habits, and our habits fuel our loves. Now, before we jump into this further, I'm going to be coming out of Mark 14 tonight, so if you have a Bible, we got any physical Bibles in the room? If you do, just hold it up. Be proud. Come on. I like it. I, that actually blows my mind. I was thinking the five o'clock, there'd be like two physical Bibles in the room, but we got a, we got a few more than that. Be coming out of Mark 14 tonight, and we're going to be looking at the lives of Mary of Bethany and Judas Iscariot. So I think Mark really sets up a contrast for us there that is, um, you can't miss it, and it's something that's so huge for us tonight. So we're gonna be coming out of Mark 14, and before we jump into this passage, I wanna, I wanna give us a little more background. I wanna kinda set the stage for this and what I, what I mean, what I'm talking about, and to jump into it, I wanna share a story about Sawyer. Um, Sawyer's three, I mentioned that a second ago, and three-year-olds are just nuts. They hit this stage when they turn three that something like switches. People say it's the terrible twos, but I'm gonna tell you right now, it's the threes, okay? It's when the threes happen, everything hits the fan. It is just nuts, okay? And here's what's happened in Sawyer's life. Two things have kind of collided at the same time for just this explosion of disaster, okay? First thing, okay? He has learned how to climb. And by climb, I mean, there's nothing off limits in the entire house. There's no like, oh, I'll just put this on the top shelf and he can't get there anymore because he's discovered how to move chairs, step stools, like step ladders, whatever it takes 
to get to his goal. Whatever it is that his heart desires, whatever it is that he wants more than anything else, he's figured out how to get there, okay? The second thing is, is that he's completely reverted on his potty training. I'm serious. The kid has like backslidden into sin. And I mean, by two, he was fully potty trained. By two, he was 100% good to go. And then when he turned three, he just decided, I'm not going to the bathroom in the potty anymore. I'm not gonna do it, I refuse. Now, when these two things like happen together, it's just bad, okay? It's just really bad. And so one Saturday afternoon, Lindsay's out, she's running errands, and uh, the house gets, you know, kind of unnaturally quiet. And if you're a parent, you know, like, that's a bad sign. Normally, kids are just loud, and when they're quiet, it's just bad. And so I, I was in the living room watching something, and uh, I remember just thinking, man, it's quiet. I'm just gonna see what they're up to. And I'm like, hey, Sawyer. I get no response. That's another bad sign, okay? Normally, what his, his pattern has been, his habit has been, is that whenever he's into something he's not supposed to be into, he will not respond. Like, he will not give away his position. He will not let you know where he is. And he's either, I mean, he's hiding. He could be anywhere, okay? And normally, it has to do with the fact that he's refusing the potty, okay? And so I'm like, Sawyer David, where are you? And I'm like looking in the closet. I'm going to all of his normal like hideouts, whatever, wherever he goes for these moments of his. And, um, and I'm like, Sawyer, if you don't answer me, you're gonna be in trouble, young man, okay? And I kind of hear this muffled, and I, I love his voice. In my opinion, it's the deepest, manliest three-year-old boy voice on the planet. And he said, um, I'm in here, Dad. <laughs> and I was like, it sounds like it's coming from the pantry. Like, I think I hear him in the pantry. So I, I go into the kitchen, I open the pantry, and I'm like, he's not in here. So I shut the pantry, and I walk back out in the living room. I'm like, Sawyer David, where are you? And I hear it again. I'm in here, Dad. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's the pantry. So I go back to the pantry, and we have nine-foot ceilings in our house, okay? I open the pantry, and I look up, and the kid... <laughs> I can't make this up if I try. The kid has used the pantry shelves as a ladder. He's on the top shelf where I put the chocolate brownies. Now, the, the kid has climbed the pantry shelves like a ladder. He is above my head. I'm, I'm 6'2", and I mean like my arms fully extended cannot reach him, okay? And he is just crushing a box of brownies. And I mean just crushing him. I'm like, Sawyer. Are you eating those brownies? No, Dad. <laughs> I am not eating those brownies. I'm like, Sawyer, I can see it on your face and in your mouth. And I mean, he like swallows an entire brownie and goes, look, Dad, I'm not. You know, like as though all the chocolate on his face and his hands was not giving away. I'm like, Sawyer, I can see the chocolate all over you. And he goes, I had a whittle, whittle brownie, Dad. <laughs> but a tiny whittle brownie. And he owns up to this sin. Now, <laughs> to make matters worse, okay, while he's crushing this box of brownies on the top shelf of the pantry, uh, as, I, as I reach up to him and bring him down, I mean, this smell just, just wafts down from the upper reaches of our pantry. And I'm just like, oh, and this, I mean, he's three. He's like a little man now. It's like unacceptable at this point, okay? 
And he's in his uh, typical attire at our house, which is Lightning McQueen underwear, and that's it. And uh, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like he completely decided, because of course he's on the top shelf of the pantry, crushing a box of brownies, that here's the perfect spot also to relieve myself. And so all of this is kind of wound up into one amazing moment as a father, and, and trust me, as a dad, you just get a lot of amazing moments like that. Now, the reason I share this and the reason that I, I bring up this ridiculous story about my, my son, which um, I hope I can tell this at his wedding one day. He'll probably love that. It'd be a great uh, re rehearsal dinner night story. But um, the reason I say this is simple. Sawyer loves chocolate brownies, okay? And his word for chocolate, it's, we're, it's like our household word now. It's baku, all right? I don't know where that's stuck, but he loves Baku milk, he loves Baku brownies, anything with Baku, which is chocolate in it. He just started calling chocolate Baku for whatever reason, and it has stuck. And so everything that has to do with chocolate in our house is Baku, and he loves Baku brownies. And at the end of the day, Sawyer loves them so much that it literally shaped his entire actions in that moment. Everything about what Sawyer did, like all of his rational knowledge about how Heights can hurt you because now that he's discovered climbing, he's also discovered falling. And he knows like, hey, the higher I get, the more it hurts when I don't land right. Everything about his desire and his love for, for Baku brownies was, was literally shaping his actions. It was forming what he decided to do. He said, hey, I am climbing this pantry to get those brownies. Now, here's the flip side. And I'm sure some ladies are gonna be an amen in here. The more Baku brownies you eat, the more you love them. Can I get an amen? The more chocolate you consume, the more you're like, God, oh, love chocolate, right? So his habits were fueling his love. His love was forming his habit. It was like literally shaping his actions, right? I love brownies, therefore I'm climbing up to get brownies. And at the same time, oh, these brownies are amazing. Now I remember why I love brownies so much, right? And this is how humans work. And I think the church has gotten this wrong a little bit. I think we've said over the years, like, hey, if I can just get the right set of thoughts into your mind, if I can just get the right beliefs into your head about who God is or, um, or what Jesus is like, then your life will just change. That will change the trajectory of your life, but they're missing something. We've been missing something, right? At the end of the day, humans are not thinkers or believers we are lovers. Just let that sit for a second. The main thing that determines your path and your trajectory through life, at the end of the day, is not your thoughts or belief. Those definitely have an impact on it. But at the end of the day, it's what you love. Your loves shape your life. Your loves form your habits, right? And you can apply this to anything, not just Baku brownies, okay? You can apply this, for example, I love college football. I love college football. So my Saturdays every fall are formed and shaped by my love for college football. What do I do in Saturdays in the fall? I sit in front of a television and I cheer on the greatest football team on the history of the planet, the Georgia Bulldogs. Come on. That's what happens on Saturdays in my home, right? I cheer on my team. I love football, okay? It shapes almost everything about my life on Saturdays in the fall. And hey, that's not a bad thing. At the end of the day, that's not the end of the world. 
The second thing is, if I'm thinking about this, the more I watch, well, this may not perfectly apply to the Georgia Bulldogs, but the more I watch football, the more I love it, right? Sometimes not so much, but for the most part, I love football, and the more I kind of fan that into flame and consume that, the more I love it. There are great moments. It is just an enjoyable thing for me to do on a Saturday, okay? Second thing I thought about is, and I'm telling you, I was in student ministry for years before um, kind of coming down here and, and taking on a more family kids role, and I'll never forget. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had this conversation with a young man or a young woman, and they would come into my office, and they'd sit down, and they'd say, Jonathan, typically, uh, not typically, sometimes more applicable will say young woman in this situation. Uh, Jonathan, so there's this guy. And the moment I heard those words, I knew the mind was already made up, okay? The moment that there's this guy was out of the mouth, I knew it was already made up, but I also knew the reason that person was sitting across you know, my desk or my chair for me in my office was because there's probably a few things like in their mind or just in the reality of the situation that are saying, this may not be the best decision, okay? This may not be the best thing for me. So there's this guy and he's not really a Christian per se. Uh, you know, he's doing some bad things and like he's into some bad stuff, but he's got so much potential, let me just say, he has so much potential. I can see it, and I know if, if we were to enter into this relationship, I could bring the best out of him, right? And so logically, like with thoughts and beliefs and ideas here, if I line these up, I could put at least 100 reasons why on a sheet of paper this is a bad idea. At least, okay? The problem is the heart was already decided. The problem is the love was already attached, the desire. Now, when I say love, I'm, I'm using this inter interchangeably. I'm not, you know, at that point, it probably wasn't love, right? She, you know, hardly knew the guy. But when I say love, I mean the desire, the, the, the want, the love of something had already been attached to an object. In this case, a guy. And so no matter how many reasons or beliefs that you put into the mind why that would be a bad decision, the decision was already done. And they were gonna go that way. And all I could do was pray and be there through the process until it came crashing down and say, hey, let's just return back to the Lord. Let's, let's, let's realign our lives now, right? You see this with, <laughs> anybody ever bought a car, a new car? <laughs> Been to a car lot and just said, man, I love that car. Here's why this is a good idea. <laughs> and I'm not leaving without that car. We see it in all of life. What we love ends up forming or shaping what we do. It's in, it ends up forming our habits. And our habits end up fueling our loves because at the end of the day, God made us as lovers. He created us. That's why the first commandment is so simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because if you do, if that's true for you, that will shape your entire life. If you love me first, that will shape everything about you. It will shape how you spend your time, what you talk about, how you use your money, how you give your life, how you work, how you relate to others. The Lord said, look, I love how St. Augustine put it. He says, Lord, you have made us for yourself. 
God, you have fashioned us and created us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And what we see there is the Lord just saying, look, I've made you for one ultimate thing. I'm not saying you can't love chocolate brownies. I'm not saying college football is a bad thing. But what I am saying is when that, these things become ultimate things, when a relationship, when money, when, when the, the good things that we see in life become an ultimate thing, an ultimate love, and we know that because whenever it's taken away, our entire lives come crashing down. When it has become an ultimate thing, it will shape your life and govern you. It will dictate all of your decisions and all of your actions. And so the Lord says, look, put me first. Put me first because I am the best thing for you. I've made you for me, created you for me. Trust me in this. Put me first and all the other things will fall into the rightful place. We see this so clearly in just the way our hearts work. I love um, Dr. John Piper. He says it like this. He goes, our hearts are desire factories. We are just constantly desiring things. Constantly. It's like these, this unending, it's, it's like, it's just how the heart works, right? It's a pump that never stops, physically even. And we are constantly attaching our lives and our affections to new things, our desires are constantly being churned for something else, something new, something that we just want, right? And at the end of the day, the Lord made us this way because he said, I want your desire to be aimed at me. I want it to be positioned on me so that at the end of the day, your life reflects who I've made you to be in my image. Let's look at the passage for a second. Mark 14, starting in verse three. I'll read this for us. While he, this is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's an amazing statement right there. Wherever the gospel is told in the whole world, what this woman did will be told in memory of her. So I, I feel like I'm just like obeying Jesus tonight, right? I'm gonna share the gospel with you guys. I pretty much have to like mention Mary of Bethany, okay? Wherever it's proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Now, here's what's crazy. The very next verse, verse 10, 1410 says this. Then 
Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief, chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him, let's say it together, money. Say it one more time, money. They promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Don't miss this. This Mark wants us to see this so clearly. He wants us to feel this, okay? Both Mary and Judas were in love. Both Mary and Judas were in love and their love was controlling their actions, okay? Mary, at the end of the day, so clear, it's so obvious, there's no question in our minds. What did Mary love? Jesus, right? 300 denarii, okay, in today's terms, all right? We're talking an entire year's wage. 300 denarii, I don't know about you, the average wage, year wage in America today is $47,000 for a year. I don't know about you, but I've never given a $47,000 gift to anybody in my life, ever. That is an incredible amount of generosity, okay? Secondly, in her day, the, the bride, the woman, was required to bring a dowry to the family of the husband. She was required to bring something of worth to the family of the husband in order to secure the marriage. So not only is she breaking something and pouring it over Jesus that is worth $47,000 in today's money, I can understand why people are like, what is happening? This is such a wasteful thing to do. But she was literally giving up her future security. Everything she had, her entire trust, her future hope of a husband, gone, right? Completely wasted on Jesus. Her love was forming her habit. Her love was informing her worship. Her love was informing her actions, right? That's what we see in her life. She said, this is the son of the living God. This is Jesus Christ sent from God to die for my sins. This is the greatest gift ever given to humanity ever. It's Jesus. This little bottle of pure nar, of pure alabaster fragrance is nothing compared to the value of Jesus. Not even close, not even in the same ballpark. My future security and happiness, all those things, nothing compared to the opportunity to show him how much I love him. Not even close, done. It's on you. This is how I love you, Jesus. This is my heart for you. This is why you are the most treasured possession in my life, is what she's saying with this offering, right? And when we see what she does, in light of what happens next, I mean, Mark is, is just painting a picture so clear, so clear. Let's look at Judas, verse 10. We'll look at it again, Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. That act, that, that simple act of worship that Mary did, just, he flew off the handle, he couldn't handle it. Immediately he left. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Promised to give him money. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. In John 12, 
Just to give us a little more context, John gives us a little bit of a different picture into the same scenario. He says this, of the same situation. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. What did Judas love? Money. We learn elsewhere that Judas was a zealot, and that was a particular branch of Israelites, right? And they, were, they wanted political power. They wanted political overthrow of Rome. They wanted Israel to be a free and independent state again. And so Judas is not only a zealot who's seeking political power and he realizes, hey, this guy, Jesus, is kind of like a revolutionary. If I attach myself to him right now, I think he can get me ultimately what I want. That's political power for Israel again. And especially as he saw Jesus do things like, I don't know, walk on water, raise the dead, multiply food and feed 5,000 people. He's like, yep, this guy is it. He is, I'm gonna ride this horse straight into political power and overthrow. He is the Messiah for Israel from a very simple perspective, a political Messiah. And that's what Judas loved. That's what he wanted. But secondly, Judas loved money. I mean, imagine stealing from the donations that were given to Jesus, right? Being the treasurer, those who were giving and funding, quote unquote, the, the ministry of Jesus, he's helping himself to it. He's lining his own pockets with it. I mean, this guy loved two things, power and money. And so his actions followed his love. The moment he saw opportunity and he realized, hey, this guy isn't going for political overthrow. He didn't realize that he was here to overthrow death and sin, right? He goes, he's not going for my small little aims for his life. I'm, I'm done with this. And I'm not gonna get rich anymore once he's dead. And so Judas betrayed him. And, and here's the thing. It says for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, according to Exodus, was the wage for a common slave. So let that sit on us for a second. And I mean, I was, I was reading this and man, my heart was stirred because I said, Lord, what are you worth to me? What are you worth to me? Would I in that scenario be like Mary who said, Lord, have my life, have my future, have everything. What you've done for me is so amazing, so incredible. It, it, it requires and deserves all I have. And even that is too small. Or am I like Judas who says, man, I really, really need Jesus to be this for me. I really need him to get me this or that or this relationship or this thing or whatever it is. And as soon as Jesus isn't fitting the mold of what I need him to do for me, I'm out. 30 pieces of silver, here you go. I'm done. And so my heart was checked because I was like, Lord, what are you worth to me? What does my life say you're worth to me? Because if my loves form my habits, if my loves shape the way I live, can you tell from my life what I love? Can you see from my life what is most valuable to me? There are no atheists. 
We are all worshiping something. We all love something. It's how God made you. It's how God made me. We can't help ourselves. The sin, sin and the fall did not destroy your ability to love. Not even close. It just brought chaos into it. It didn't destroy your ability to love things. It just brought chaos into your love and started aiming it in all these different directions. And then our lives began going after everything. We began worshiping creation instead of creator. And our entire lives began to get shaped by those loves. Sin brought chaos to our hearts. And so when I think about the gospel, when I think about radical grace and what Jesus did for us at the end of the day and the fact that, hey, we were made to love God first and foremost. When I think about that, here, here's, here's all it is at the end of the day. Lord, show me how much you loved me first so that my love is so undone for you, my life just wraps itself around you. The only way, we can't just muster up love for God on our own. We can't just just create something where like, all right, God, today I promise I'm gonna love you more than everything else. Lord, I, I promise I'm gonna love you more than all these idols in my life. All these things that are just grabbing for my affections every day. We need to get on our knees and beg him, plead with him, say, Lord, show me your grace. Show me the love you have for me. Because the moment you see what he did for you, like Mary did, your automatic response is here. Take it all. The automatic overflow of your heart is not, man, I got to muster myself up into this now. It's take it all, all of it. You have my whole life. You rescued me from sin and death. You came as the, the ultimate perfect sacrifice on my behalf. This is what you've done for me. Have it all. This is my response to you. And sure, you can enjoy wonderful things in life, but is Jesus your ultimate love? Is he the one that's shaping and forming your whole life? I'll start to bring it home with this. Um, recently, I got to take my daughter to... Uh, this is one of the coolest things you'll ever get to do, dads. Uh, if you're not a dad yet, it's something you get to look forward to. I got to take her to a, um, a daddy-daughter princess dance. It was amazing. And this was like uh, daddy-daughter princess on steroids, okay? <laughs> I don't know if y'all know Chris Carneal or not, but this dude, whatever he does, he just goes huge. And he did a Disney princess under the theme, like under the sea, princess dance theme at the Georgia Aquarium, okay? Now, like, you know, I've been to a couple of these things with Lily Hope, and I'm like, this will be sweet and cute, and this is fun, and she's five now, so she knows, like, hey, this is a daddy-daughter date night. This is a big deal, okay? So she's, like, getting into this whole reality of the princess dance and everything else, and, but, you know, I, when I was in seminary up in Kentucky, I, I went to a couple of these with her, and, you know, they were cute and sweet, and you had, you know, a DJ just trying to figure it out and really awkward <laughs> dancing and, you know, whatever. So um, that was kind of my paradigm for daddy-daughter daddy -daughter princess dances, okay? Um, when I walk into the Georgia Aquarium, I'm, we're greeted by like uh, Pocahontas, Belle, Ariel, uh, Elsa, Anna, and like this slew of full-on Disney princesses, Okay. Lily Hope just loses it. I mean, right off the bat, she's like, oh, it's Cinderella's like, carriage. It's like, oh my gosh, there, I, I wanna get a selfie with Ariel. Like, this is unbelievable, right? And I'm just like, 
oh my gosh. I mean, there's like vine swings hanging from the ceilings and whale sharks like going around the edge. And this DJ with a full on like Magic Kingdom castle built behind him. And I was like, unreal. Like this is, my mind is blown right now by what I've just stepped into with my daughter. But what's, what's incredible about this night and why I want to share it is, is not the actual dance, but it's everything leading up to the dance. And I'll never forget, Lindsay and I, we went out with Lily Hope and we picked her out this dress, this beautiful white sequin dress, and we got her some new shoes and a little, uh, ladies help me out, shoulder overcoat thingy, I don't know, sweater deal. I don't know what that, yeah, that. And so we, uh, you know, she was so excited because she, you know, she got, a, she got a say in this and she got to pick it out. And we, we come home and I mean, she, every morning for like two weeks leading up to the dance, is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the daddy-daughter princess date? And I'm like, not yet. It's not till two weeks. You know, hold on. And so finally the day came and she got to get ready. And this was like the first time that Lindsay's let her, her wear makeup curled her hair, done these things. I mean, she's, you know, she's dressed up before. You can't stop a girl from like dressing up, okay? They're gonna dress up, but this was different, okay? This was like curl the hair, hairspray, little bit of lipstick, eyeshadow, all this stuff, right? And you're, you're getting to literally see this little child look like a little girl for the first time. And so, I mean, as she's getting ready, she's like, dad, get out of here. You can't see me till I'm done. I'm like, okay. And so I go put my suit on and get my tie and I'm kind of waiting on the front porch because this was a big moment. And I, I began to realize pretty quickly that this was gonna be the most significant moment in my relationship with her to date. And not the dance, but what was about to happen when she showed herself to me for the first time. Lindsay told me later, she said, um, you know, once she was finished, she looked at herself in the mirror and she said, wow, mom, I've, I've never been this pretty before. And that crushed me for one. I mean, like, just the cuteness of it. And, um, but it wasn't enough for her just to think of herself that she was pretty. She needed to hear what she thought of herself validated by her dad. She needed to hear her dad say to her, you're beautiful. I accept you, you're enough. She needed to hear her dad look at her and pick her up and just freak out, completely freak out over her. There was something in her, and let me tell you, this moment was not about vanity. It wasn't about actual physical beauty. It was about her father affirming the image of God in her and saying, you're enough, because let me tell you, from this point on, Lily Hope is gonna face one thing in life and that's lies that say you're not enough. You're not pretty enough, you're not skinny enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not cool enough. You got the wrong clothes, the wrong hair, the wrong shoes. And what she needs more than anything else from her dad is to combat that lie and say, you are enough. You're enough, you don't need to be anybody else. And in that moment, Lily Hope made herself vulnerable. And this was a courageous thing for her to do. I'll never forget it. I will never forget it. I'm sitting outside on our front porch swing and um, just kind of waiting for her to finish. And the screen door is open, but I'm sitting kind of, if that's the screen door, I'm sitting here so the door has to open and then she comes out. 
And I'm sitting there and uh, I hear her say, okay, dad, I'm ready. I'm ready to come out now, dad, are you ready? And I'm not kidding you, I, I see my little girl every day. I see her all the time. She has never, ever asked me, hey, are you ready to see me, dad? She just comes barging into wherever I am and jumps on me. I'm her dad, like she's 100% comfortable around me. But in this moment, she said, dad, are you ready? Because she was nervous. I could hear it in her voice. What she was about to do took courage because this was the first time in her life that she could actually be rejected by somebody. This was the first moment in her life where she actually did something to herself for another. She made herself look beautiful, not just for herself, but for me, her dad. And in this moment, she had, the, she had this sense about her that, wow, deep down, a question, what if he doesn't like it? What, what if he's just indifferent? What if he thinks my hair doesn't look right? And she, I mean, I could hear it. She was nervous. And I was like, I'm ready, sweetheart. Come on out. And the door swung open and she walked out and, oh man. She smiled and then she looked straight at the ground. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. And she just waited. And I got up out of my swing and I, I ran over to her and I picked her up and I, I looked her in the eye and said, Lily Hope, you're the most beautiful little girl in the whole world. You're enough, your daddy loves you. Show me your dress, spin around for me. Oh, do it again. Can you do it one more time? And as I held her and just adored her, she just laughed. She just giggled, she couldn't even help herself. It just came out of her, right? It came out of her. And when I'm thinking about what shapes our loves, when I'm thinking about how does God shape our love, how does he capture our heart and then completely redirect the trajectory of our life? This is what he does. And men, stick with me here. I'm not just trying to, to give this illustration for the women. This is what he does. He looks at us in our moments of fear, in our moments of uncertainty, in our moments of shame, because every single one of us in here, it's one of the qualifications for being human, has shame, has fear, has regret, has made bad decisions. All of us, equal playing field. And he steps into that moment right there and says, I accept you. I'm receiving you. I went to the cross. You were the joy set before me on the cross. You are the reason I went. You are the reason I'll go again. You're the one I'm pursuing. You're the one I love. And when that hits us, when that lands on the human heart, I don't care if you're the most unemotional guy or girl on the planet. That's what you were made for, that kind of love. And that will radically realter your life. The reason the Lord set up his kingdom through this lens of grace, the reason that he set it up through this lens of mercy, unmerited favor and mercy. It's because he knows there is no more powerful force on the planet than when a person experiences the love of God, the unconditional love of God for the first time. And he says, if I can just show them that, everything about them will change. Their love will be formed and shaped by that love. Their life will be formed and shaped by that love. 
their habits will be formed and shaped by that love. And when I think about this series habit that we're in, and I think about what am I doing to fan and to fuel that into flame, to understand that this is the reality, this is the trajectory of my life, this is what I've been made for. This is why our habits are so huge. This is why they're so massive. Because at the end of the day, am I setting myself in a community of people who are gonna say, hey, remember what you were made for. Remember what God did for you. Am I putting myself around men who are gonna say, hey, remember the gospel. Let's read the word together. Let's pray together. Let's not forsake meeting together because ultimately you wanna cultivate habits in your life that reorient your life around the ultimate love, what you were made for. And until you do that, until that becomes the pattern of your life, you'll be empty, you'll be restless, you'll be searching, you won't find what you're looking for. And at the end of the day, when I think about Lily Hope and I think about Mary of Bethany and I think about Judas, I think about myself, the one thing that we need more than anything else is our heavenly father to step into that moment of shame and fear and uncertainty and say, remember my love for you. Remember what I did for you. Remember the cross. Remember there is nothing you have done or will do or can do that can separate you from my love. And when that lands on the human heart, it's over. So we are made for, that's what we are created for.